One of our favorite pastimes is egging fish on, because he's really easy to egg on. Like a lot of the things that he ends up singing are songs that he would profess that he hates them to us. He would make the mistake of telling us that he hates something. And then we'd be like, oh my God. I remember one day he said, hold your head up, came on the radio and he said, I hate this song. So then the next time he went out to sing a song, we were dun, 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 because you know, we knew we hated it. It's just a fun thing. I mean, he's such a good guy that it's just easy to, you know. I remember another was, I think, somewhere we heard I Kissed a Girl by Katy Perry. And he's like, oh, I hate this song. And we're like, oh my God, you got to do it. <laughs> Come on, man. He's like, I'm not doing that song. It's <laughs> like, just do it. It's going to be great. It's so ironic. You doing it in a dress as a guy. It works on so many levels. <laughs> but he didn't sing it because it was his favorite song. <laughs> you know, we kind of egged him on. <laughs> and then he did it. <laughs> But you can tell when he's doing it, if you look at the other band members, we appreciate him doing that stuff because it's really for our pleasure. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's Fish guitarist Trey Anastasio explaining how he and his bandmates convinced drummer John Fishman to accept a song he detested, Arjun's Hold Your Head Up, as his theme music whenever he steps to the front of the stage to sing lead. Not only that, but how they've occasionally coerced him into performing a tune. Yet it's all in the name of goodwill and fellowship. In our final episode, we're going to discuss the legacy of Fish, both on stage and off stage. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. In speaking with the band members about how they conceptualize Fish, they have emphasized that friendships are paramount. Even though they've hoodwinked John Fishman into covering Katy Perry, or as we heard in episode seven, cajoled the drummer into wearing his donut dress for a second consecutive Nectar's show so as not to rot the gig, they have done so with deep affection. I have never been around a musician who practices harder and cares more than John Fishman ever. And I've been laughing with that guy since the day I met him. Like, I have to leave the room so he can practice because we'll start laughing backstage. The guy practices three hours every night. The band members' proximity on stage is a metaphor for their collective relationship, and it also reflects their musical intentions, as the drummer explains. We've always prided ourselves on being pretty close together. Like when we look at early photos, it's like, look how close we were. And let's, even though we're playing these big rooms, let's stay close. It's sonically oriented. Our intention is to stay tight as a band and to be able to hear each other really well. But we like the way that looks as like, this is a tight unit. This is a band that is a tight unit. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that communicates something to the outside world that, this is a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. And it's not spread out across the stage, this tight little unit right here in this room. You know, the room gets bigger, but the band stays the same size. We want people to see us that way. We want people to see us all standing close together because of what that communicates. The tightness of the friendship, the camaraderie, the tightness of the band musically, the intent to be tight. 
What it communicates in many respects is 36 years of friendship. Here, Fishman describes a trip he took with Trey while still UVM undergrads. His sister had visited this beach in Greece, Pelicus Beach, years before and it told him about it and you know said you got to go there and visit so our goal was eventually to get to Corfu Island and go to Pelicus Beach on Corfu Island that was our goal we rented a little car and we'd make money along the way and eventually get down to Corfu and see what that was all about and we went over to just be street musicians which is what we did but the interesting thing one of the things that Trey brought up about that was how when we left home we said goodbye to our parents and families or whatever, and, you know, just went to Europe for two months. And, you know, I mean, occasionally you might get to a payphone and call home and make an international collect call home just to tell them that you were alive, right? But for the most part, you're over there and you were on this adventure, 19 years old, 20 years old on this adventure in Europe, backpacking around Europe, being street musicians, you know, and... He was saying, you know, when we did that, he goes, those days are over. Because nowadays, I mean, everyone has a cell phone. The two of them certainly didn't, which helped them form a lasting bond without those distractions. That relationship, like the relationship with all members of Fish, almost supersedes the music, which is what happened when the two of them briefly forgot they were on stage in front of over 80,000 people. This leads us back to episode one, and the turn of the millennium at Fish's Big Cypress event. There was a portalette on stage, which was deemed necessary for a performance that extended over seven hours. At one point, Trey walked over to it, and Fishman followed. And I had kind of thought in my mind that if we went in the portalette for a minute, like Paige would kind of like do like a cool synth jam for a while, like I don't know, somehow in my mind I thought that would become like the best jam of the night. I kind of forgot that we were on stage in front of 80,000 people for a minute. We just started talking. And we were like talking to each other. Like, hey man, how's it going up there? All right, cool. And we, all of a sudden, he like started telling me some funny story. And I'm like, oh, that's all. Yeah. Fish and I kind of talk like that sometimes. And all of a sudden, there's like a, like, you got to go back on stage. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I got this knock on the door. And I'm like, I'm like oh, sorry. And we like went running back out again. We just want to hang out with our friends, and it still feels like that. It still feels like that. And the four of us have so much fun together. That's what I mean about that Portalette story. It's just like we start talking, and I forget where I even am. Like, I'm, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be an entertainer or entertaining or something. Like, I'm at the party, too. The band members often extend their good-natured affection to those in their extended family. In 1989, Fish released their initial studio recording on cassette. The band named it Junta, after then-co-manager Ben Junta Hunter. The one person initially unaware of the title was Ben Junta Hunter. Here's Ben. I was completely gobsmacked by the fact that it was called Junta. I remember going to pick up a box of cassettes from the place where they were dubbing them, you know, and... In those days, there used to be places that would have, you know, 150 tape decks, and they would take the master, and then they would dub all these tapes at the same time. And I went to pick up this box, and I picked it up, and I broke it open immediately because I had an Alpine tape deck in my 1986 Jeep Comanche pickup truck. 
And I breathlessly ripped open this box and I pulled out a tape and it said Junta on it. And I thought, oh man, this is, this is a joke because I thought that these guys would be playing a joke on me because that was very much part of their lexicon and still is these unexpected things that, you know, they never tell anybody about and then they spring them on them and they like to see people's reactions. And I was alone at the time. So I pulled it out and I put the tape into my tape deck and started listening to it. And I just assumed that it was a joke. And then later on, when I got back to the office, I remember taking another tape out and it said Junta. And I was like, what the hell's going on? I took another tape out and it said Junta. And I took another tape out and it said Junta. I said, oh, man, this doesn't end well, does it? They hadn't told me at all that that's what they were calling the album. And at the time, there was talk of calling the second album uh, Paluska, but I guess that didn't roll off the tongue quite so well. So I I don't know, but... uh, I was flattered by it and slightly flummoxed. Someone who is rarely flummoxed is the band's longtime New York City promoter, Ron Delsner. Ron is a force of nature who has been enmeshed in the concert business for well over 50 years. One of the earliest shows he worked on was the Beatles at Shea Stadium in 1965. I was called a people's promoter when I started. I did all the shows in Central Park for free, and I started out with a dollar a ticket, two shows a night, Led Zeppelin opening for B.B. King, stuff like that for a buck. I haven't stopped doing it. We first met Ron in episode three, as he hosted that special dinner party for Chip Cooper, with a guest list that included Paul McCartney, John Bon Jovi, and Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, who calls him Uncle Ronnie. Delsner recalls first meeting Fish in 1992. I saw him at Roseland Ballroom. I walked in, we had booked him, and the people are going like crazy. I mean, they're dancing like a storm. 3,000 people we put in that place. And I go, man, after the show, I rushed backstage. I said, look, I'm quitting my job as a promoter. I'm your new manager. I've seen it, and that's the future. John Landau said, I've seen the future. This Bruce Springsteen. I've seen the real future, the new future, and this is it. Fish keyboard player Paige McConnell reflects. Ron Delser has been a, a huge supporter, and it is true that he did burst into the band room and said, I want to manage you guys. He never did manage us, but that is a true story. I, and he, he was always so enthusiastic and... I'm going to book you guys all over the country. I'm going to do what I did with the Stones. I'm going to put you in every market in the country. When the band members announced that their final shows would take place at Coventry, Ron was the only promoter not directly connected with the event to make his way up to Vermont, braving the rain and mud. Oh, and he wore a dress. I get close to the place and you can see thousands of people sleeping all over the place in tents and there's cars in mud and people aren't moving. So I, backstage, I quickly change into a dress. My wife had a house dress. I take up my clothes. I put a house dress on because that's what Jonathan wears, you know? He wears that. So I say, what the fuck? And a friend of mine who was their business manager puts me in a golf cart. And I get a cigar in my mouth and a dress. And I go out to see the kids in the mob. And they're going, yeah, you know, here comes Grandpa, whatever the fuck it was. And I'll get a cigar and a dress. And, yeah, hang in there, gang. It's going to be great tonight, blah, blah, blah. He did. He wore a dress, and other times he'll wear, like, his Vermont sort of hunting things. A lot of times he'll show up wearing his Elmer Fudd hunting hat and his red plaid jacket, and it's his Vermont look. 
I have a checkered black and red stuff I bought up in Maine with the hat. I call it the schmuck hat with the ear flaps, coat, and I have an axe and a box of pancake mix. Ron doesn't just book bands out of a plush office and then maintain his distance. He actually is a presence at the shows. He has promoted all of Fish's Madison Square Garden appearances and was in attendance for all 13 Baker's Dozen dates. He was at every night at the Baker's Dozen. Maybe even more impressive is that he went down to Hampton, Virginia when the band got back together in 2009. He went to all three of those shows in Hampton, Virginia at the Coliseum, which I thought was pretty remarkable for him to travel that far to see us. But he's a legend. The man is a legend. And uh, we love Ron very much and are thrilled that he's still, still working with us. And it makes you feel like you have a connection to Sinatra and all these folks that you know that he's worked with over the years and rubbed elbows with. It's kind of fun. Fish hasn't named an album after Ron, but during the group's 2011 New Year's Eve webcast from MSG, in between sets, the band aired an interview that Mike conducted with the promoter. Here Ron turns the table and asks Mike a question. Who would you have even sit in with you or open for you if you had to? That's a question that yeah. Not that, that you is, need it, but one day. a difficult question. Who does Danny one want One day. Zappa would be, be like there a, with you guys. Frank yeah. would be great. Frank was the best. He was so incredible. Yeah. He would love you, too. Well, I'm going to come up with all the answers to that question. Think about it and yeah. write me a note okay. and send it to P.O. Box 10, okay. Radio City Station, okay. self-addressed stamp up with a $50 bill. Okay. And it'll Trey always says the hardest thing you can do is be yourself, and especially as an artist and a musician. And Delsner is one of these examples of people who is himself. So that's why it's nice to meet someone who somehow owns that. Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. When talking about the Fish legacy, it's important to consider the audience as well. Just as the band members hold each other in the highest regard, so too do they extend that deep respect to their supporters. Fish has long attempted to erase the barriers between the band and its audience. One way it did so was through two chess matches that took place during the group's fall 1995 tour. 
so we're playing a ton of chess on the road. We're playing with Widespread Panic and Blues Traveler and all these interband chess matches. And we, we had a band chess tournament going and uh, we had a spreadsheet of wins and losses between the band members and our sound people. It was like we're getting everybody involved. And so then somebody, you know, said, oh, we should play the audience. And we'll make a big chessboard. We'll hang it up on the thing. And at the beginning of the gig, we'll make a move. And the middle of the gig, during the break, the audience makes their move. And we go town to town. And each town, both sides get one move, right? And it'll be this thing that'll connect the whole tour. And it was a cool idea. Full disclosure. On December 2nd, 1995, I made the audience chess move. In New Haven, moments before the band took the stage for their second set. Throughout that tour, during set breaks, interested members of the audience gathered at the Greenpeace table to vote on a move. Then a representative was selected and ushered backstage. Tonight's chess move for the audience will be Dean Budnick, hailing from Cambridge, Mass. The band had won the first game, and this was near the start of the second game, in which the audience would eventually prevail. My move was relatively simple, advancing one of our pawns. But as I stepped off stage, the band members were lined up in a row and each individually complimented me on my efforts as I walked past them. The precursor to the chess game in many respects was the big ball jam, in which four oversized inflatable balls were released into the audience, with each of these representing a musician. So each band member has a ball and we're playing when that ball lands, but it didn't necessarily make for the most rhythmic playing because sometimes a ball would land in between beats, but it felt meaningful in that symbolic way. We're letting the audience play the band and to be able to say that is huge. As John Fishman looks back on all this, he makes a connection between the big ball jam and the secret language, which we introduced in episode five. That's where the group produced musical signals on stage, which prompted audience responses from collapsing to the ground to shouting Homer Simpson's signature, dope. Now we're all participating. It's not just you standing there looking at a band. Now you're involved too. You're contributing something, which means that that has stayed in the collective memory of fish fans that were around at that period of time. You know, and I'm willing to bet that at the end of the day, the people that saw us during that period of time, that might end up being the only thing they remember, really. When you're like 80 years old, they'll be like, ah, that band that used to do the signal with the Homer Simpson thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> From there, he turns to the relationship between the band's own Waterwheel Foundation, which we discussed in episode nine, and the Mockingbird Foundation, the fan-run nonprofit that supports music education, which we introduced in episode eight, for its work on the all-star compilation album, Sharing in the Groove, celebrating the music of fish. I like to think that maybe us starting Waterwheel inspired some fans to maybe do Mockingbird. I don't know which came first, to be honest with you. Maybe we were inspired by our fans, but there's another, even on that level, there's some connection and communication between us and our audience that even on that kind of social activism, social consciousness level there you know i love that i love that you know to look out into our world and like think man you know like something we did attracted an element of our audience that did that on their own i think that is a really great example of 
the positivity that can come from music existing for its own sake, you know. The Mockingbird Foundation originated with a book project, The Fish Companion, which provides show reviews, song histories, set lists, and the like. Fish has been very supportive of Mockingbird, and the band has directed a percentage of proceeds from every live fish download to the foundation. In turn, Mockingbird has awarded more than $1.4 million in grants to over 400 organizations in all 50 states. The Fish Companion team received special assistance as well. In 2001, board member Charlie Dirksen was sitting in his San Francisco office shortly after the publication of the 980-page first edition. Mike Gordon gave me a call and was just like, hey, you know, I've read a lot of The Fish Companion. I was wondering if I could talk to somebody about giving you guys information, particularly about song histories. He spoke with me for several hours, so I was just typing out everything he was telling me, and he went page by page through the song history section, primarily, of The Fish Companion, correcting it and giving information in it. And so, no joke, the second edition of The Fish Companion, one of its most major contributors was Mike Gordon. Just as the Mockingbird Foundation is a charitable endeavor, Dirksen has been altruistic in spreading the music of fish. For a period of time, starting in 1996, he literally took one for the team. The point being that he felt like he was a member of the team, which he was, for all intents and purposes, as he proselytized on behalf of the band. Charlie posted an open offer on the Fishnet, indicating that he would make copies of Fish's August 1993 shows for anyone who would send him blank cassettes and return postage. Blanks and postage. B and P in the parlance of the time. I basically opened it up to everybody. And so when the packages of blanks and postage started coming, the postman brought them by the crate. He literally had crates of blanks and postage packages. And he would just leave the entire crate by the door of the apartment I was subletting that summer between my first and second year of law school. And because I was dubbing so much, my biorhythms basically changed. And I was waking up every 45 minutes to an hour to flip a tape. My biorhythms changed so that I would wake up throughout the night to flip tapes. And I was doing it like just, you know, unconsciously kind of. And my wife at one point had a dream that I had gotten a giant back tattoo of the United States Postal Service Eagle. <laughs> that was like part of the logo back then. You know, the eagle that showed up on the, the return postage and was on the stickers for Priority Mail. I did that so often that I ran through four or five cassette decks. That personal engagement has been present all the way back to the band's Burlington days, when, as Mike recalls, some fans were distraught because Fish was leaving Nectars and moving to the front. We had graduated to this club that was like, I don't know, three or 400 capacity instead of Nectars, which was like 100 or 150, I'm just guessing, capacity. So it's not that different, but someone was sitting on the bar crying because they were a big fan at the time. And when we only played in Burlington, Vermont, pretty much. And they were crying because they're not our band anymore. Like now here they are at this mega venue of 300 people. And we lost them. Mike Greenhouse, my longtime colleague at Relics, an fish enthusiast ever since he heard Fee while at summer camp in the early 90s, reflects. 
there's this idea that the more you go back to fish shows, the more that you immerse yourself in the community, the more you're going to get from it, is something that's very unique to them. And I think there is that element of continued discovery that really appeals to someone who grew up collecting baseball cards or grew up collecting comic books or records, and now kind of as they got older and start seeing music, really want to kind of collect experiences, you know, whether it's, oh, you know, I've never seen fish at the Gorge, or I've never seen fish at Deer Creek, or I've never seen fish at Alpine Valley. I know from my personal experience, you know, those are all things on my bucket list that I made a point in my life to do, almost as if I was trying to collect that Mickey Mantle baseball card at some point. In episode six, I mentioned journalist David Gans' 1983 essay titled Grateful Dead Concerts Are Like Baseball Games. I think it is altogether relevant to contemplating the fish experience as well. Here's a portion of it. Deadheads are a varied lot, like baseball fans. Some are scorekeepers, who record the details for posterity and or statistical analysis. Some are camera buffs, armchair quarterbacks, groupies, bleacher bums who'd be there no matter who's playing, and spousal fans, who go because if they didn't, they'd be left home alone. Some people go because they've always gone and couldn't bear to stop. It may take a few visits to grasp the subtleties, but there's something to enjoy from the first moment you're there. It's cerebral if you choose to analyze it, but it's instinctive and basic too. You can go to recapture your innocent past or cheer them on to new glory. To some, they're an institution. To some, mere child's play. And to many people, the Grateful Dead are a more or less indispensable part of the life they live. David Gans himself suggests... Fish is similar to the Grateful Dead in the sense of delivering to their audience of sort of, you know, multi-dimensional experience in time and space. I think of the Grateful Dead as this gigantic cube of experience that you can run into somebody who uh, shares your love of the Grateful Dead and you can immediately start comparing notes and figure out that you've been in the same room at the same time any number of times over the last 30, 40, 50 years. Fish is the same thing. It's a rich and varied experience that included not just the music, but the adventures of going to the shows, the camping out weekends, the sustained engagement over time. These both bands, Fish and the Grateful Dead, gave to us a whole world to occupy for our lives. This is part of the Fish legacy, yet in many respects, the band stands outside it, as Trey indicates. The four of us are hermetically sealed, right? So I've never seen Fish. I don't know any of this stuff. It's very fascinating to me. You know, people kind of assume that I know as much as they do, but I really don't. The fan base has even created its own jargon. Benji Eisen curated his own Fishnet Digest in the early 90s and has gone on to pursue a career as a writer. He co-authored Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzmann's autobiography and even managed him for a stretch including the period in 2015 when Trey Anastasio joined Kreutzmann and the core four members of the Grateful Dead at the Fare Thee Well concert event. Here, Benji explains the distinction between type one and type two jamming. Type one jamming is when you're soloing over a form. So you have the song, but then all of a sudden the guitar player might say, hey, vamp a little bit, I want a solo. You know, whether verbally or else even just, you know, communicating somehow or other. With a type 1 jam, the song does get stretched out, 
but three quarters of the band are just playing the same thing again and again to hold down the musical bed for a soloist. And then they're passing around the solos. And type two is uh, more of what the jazz players did, where they're leaving the form of the song altogether, so everyone on stage needs to be a part of that improvisation because they're improvising not just the notes and not just an extended solo, but the actual form of the song. The linguistic formulations of fish fans was a subject of interest at the first Fish Studies Academic Conference held at Oregon State University in May 2019 and chaired by Dr. Stephanie Jenkins. Benji was there and delivered a paper titled The Words I Sailed Upon, Form and Function in Fish's Lyrical Heritage. Beyond the academic setting, Fish's impact is wide-ranging. Fish fan Ashley Driscoll created GrooveSafe, which advocates for safe space against unwanted touching and sexual assault at any live music event. Brothers Brando and Dusty Cash responded to the elevated ticket prices around Fish's return in 2009 by founding CasherTrade.org, the world's only social network where fans can buy, sell, and trade tickets for face value. Paul Glace launched Fantasy Tour, creating a setlist game for Fish fans akin to the fantasy sports realm. Community gathering places also have developed around Andy Gadiel's Fish page, the Fishnet, Yemblog, Fan Art, Fish Chicks, The Funky Bitches, The Fellowship, and many others. These independent entities share a common aspiration to remain present and responsive. As John Fishman thinks back on his college trip with Trey to Corfu, he recalls a recent photo that has held deep meaning for his friend. It's on the back cover of the booklet that comes with Fish's Baker's Dozen three-CD set. Trey, so this is my favorite picture of our crowd right now. This is my favorite photo ever right now. It's all these people that really look like they're having a moment of ecstasy. It must have been some musical peak or something that was happening at the moment. But he said, what do you notice? And I said, well, I don't know. It's a lot of happy looking people. You know, that feels good. And he says, no, there's not one cell phone in the air. And I thought, oh my God. It was all the people sort of down on the floor. And the photo had, you know, a couple hundred people in it at least. It was a pretty panoramic shot, and there wasn't a single cell phone in the air. For some people, the enduring legacy of a rock act is entwined with induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fish's hot dog is already hanging in the atrium of the Rock Hall. Artists become eligible 25 years after their first commercial release, and it's been 30 years since the release of Junta. So should the band be similarly enshrined? Here's first fan, Amy Skelton. That's a ridiculous question. <laughs> That's a completely ridiculous question. Of course they will be and should be. These things take time, but I would say there's no 
question that they have done something completely different than any other band and continue to blaze their own path and continue to make amazing music that is different from anybody's. Lighting designer Chris Kuroda adds, Very much so. Here's why. Simply, Fish is a phenomenon. More than are they a great band, are they a decent band, Fish is a phenomenon. You can't even put it into words what Fish is. There are so many people on this planet where Fish means so much to them that they literally believe they can't live without Fish. Fish is their whole life. And Fish is this thing that grew out of whatever it grew out of and became whatever it is. And it's so different. There's nothing in the world like fish, and there never will be anything like fish after there's no more fish. It's this original, unique moment in time that will never be recreated. That's why I think they belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sirius XM Fish Radio Program Director and on-air host Ari Fink shares his thoughts. It's not a matter of if Fish is inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's only a matter of when. And when it does happen, it has to be the weirdest, strangest, most interesting, most fascinating crossover of pop culture versus counterculture that's ever been presented on any stage. I mean, a grand event would not do it justice in my mind. For these guys to be inducted in an authentic fashion and to seize that moment in a particularly fish-centric way, it's not just about flying in on a hot dog. It's about something so ridiculous and so humorous and so musical that we're all left to talk about it for the end of time. And I can't wait for whenever that happens. What would that moment be like? One version of it already happened on May 7th, 2008, at the theater at Madison Square Garden, when the four members of Fish accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Jammies. Trey, Mike, Fish, Fish. At the time, they were still officially broken up. And while they didn't perform, just appearing on stage together in this public setting was significant, as they hadn't done so since Coventry in August 2004. I rented a green tuxedo to give them their awards, alongside photographer Danny Clinch and Sirius XM's Jonathan Schwartz, who is now an on-air host for Fish Radio. Mike speaks first and emphasizes the band's abiding friendships. Just about um, an hour and a half ago, I was lying in a bed, sick from working too hard and stuff like that, and I was just thinking, can I get up, can I get up, popping Advil's in my mouth, and then I was thinking, well, to get to stand with my oldest friends and deepest brothers ever in the same location with all of my other friends standing around, of course I can get up from down the street. So thanks so much, this means a lot. Paige and Fishman offer brief remarks. I want to express something that's been on my mind for... Then Trey adds some thoughts on the community element. I've always wanted to somehow have a moment when I could convey to some degree what all of this meant to me and I know to the other guys too that 
we would talk at a lot of different times, and it always felt like we were part of something that was so much bigger than the four of us. Um, I think, um, in retrospect, um, it feels like it was even bigger than our, um, like, you know, our group of friends and our scene. It felt almost like a cultural kind of timing thing. And it's the greatest joy as a musician to be able to translate that and be part of something and watch the scenery around you. That's what it felt like being in Fish all those, all those years. And um, one of the things that we talked about for the King is it's an honor. And I, and I feel such gratitude and I feel so honored to have been there watching everybody dance and watching the whole thing just kind of, it's almost like watching a movie. So thank you so much for letting us be part of your experience. So how to best encapsulate the essence of fish? In 2008, former fish road manager Brad Sands went on the road with the police. They always would pick on me and make fun of me for, like, being the young kid out there, even though I was, like, in my 30s, and fish, oh, we never heard of them, ha, 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 you know, and we're on the private jet, and Sting's like, play me a fish song, come on, convince me that this is good, and I'm like, uh, what should I play? I don't know, you know, like, and, like, I chose limb by limb, like, what the hell was I thinking? What should he have selected? I still don't know. I mean, I thought about it. I was like, sand, ghost, maybe? You know, and like if you put Divided Sky on, like, yeah, it's an amazing song, but it's also kind of, it's like, a, you know, if you're like first listen, you're just like, dun, 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 dun. you're like, what is this? You know, but you know, it's unique. That's the thing. There may be no definitive answer, as the majesty of fish is in the ephemeral, in the way the sands shift in the moment, which leads us to the great wind. The band members have said that their festivals have held the deepest meaning to them. To my mind, a particular moment at the Great Went manifests the group's core mindset. Over the course of the weekend, the four musicians and the audience members alike painted objects that were then affixed to a giant tower. At the close of the event, during the Tweezer Reprise Encore, a giant match burned the structure to the ground. At the time, I was studying Buddhism, doing mindfulness meditation and going on retreats and reading books. And there's a lot about impermanence. And the Buddha talked a lot about what we cling to being a big distraction and hindrance in our lives and and causing a lot of suffering trying to cling. But it was a beautiful thing to build the structure together, the band and the audience, and then to burn it is a huge celebration of what the moment means. And it's saying that every moment is just about that moment. And even though people are taping the show and can experience it later, and that'll be a new moment, but really it's not going to be the same. It's about us all being together in this time and this place. And burning that was, I think, a recognizing of that. I mean, the way I looked at it then and the way I look at it now, what I think is cool about it is just it's symbolic of that whole like we're here today and gone tomorrow, you know, and nothing lasts forever. And this sort of the fleetingness of, you know, you have this 
70,000 people or whatever kind of came all the way to this really remote place in Maine and we all gathered in this spot and had this really cool, unique experience. And then we're all going to leave here and dissipate and go back out. And that energy and that thing that happened there at that moment is going to go up into the air and become part of the stars, you know? Somebody said a really good thing recently. I, I mean, I don't know why I hadn't thought of this on my own years and years and years ago, but lately I've been thinking about it a lot, that really life is just like making good memories. I mean, humanity will have existential discussions forever and ever and, you know, the meaning of life and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like one aspect of it, at least, one purpose of being here is to make memories, make good memories. And now that I think about it, there's a lot of times in my life where I think I was very conscious of that. And I feel like those festivals, whether it was Big Cypress or Great Wind or It or any of them, that all the festivals in a way are, I think, our attempt to make some really special, unique memories. In addition to all those memories, at the heart of the fish experience, what keeps the band in motion and brings us all back time and time again is that glorious effort to achieve an elusive, tantalizing goal. You can never attain the speed of light. Sometimes I call it walking halfway to the wall. You just keep walking halfway to the wall. You know, now you're an inch away. Now you're a half an inch away. Now you're a quarter of an inch away. Now you're an eighth of an inch away. I've often thought, I love that song, Break On Through to the Other Side, though I don't think the way to break on through to the other side is with, like, bourbon. (laughs) I don't think you're ever going to break on through to the other side that way. (laughs) I'd like to break on through to the other side with music. You know what I mean? And spirituality or whatever it is. You know, I think usually the bourbon just kills you. But the song is unbelievable and the concept. I feel like it would be a great cover for Fish because... It's what we're trying to do. You know what I mean? The band exists in the present moment, in the now. We prepare, we work, we prepare, and then we forget everything and exist in the present moment. And then, you know, that moment vanishes. Once it's gone, it's gone. Thanks for listening to season one of Long May They Run. Next time on Long May They Run. That's right, there is a next time, a bonus episode, in which we'll address some of your questions and share some additional content from over 100 hours of interviews conducted for the podcast. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C13 Originals. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, 
Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockridge, and me. Season one is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Perry Crowell. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination by Terrence Malingone. And production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney. Press by Hilary Schuff. And marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off, written by Miles Davis. And performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.